John chapter 5, starting in verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is God's word. Praise be to God. All right, well, I, have, I don't have much experience in court cases outside of the TV shows and movies that I watch. But it seems like the most important thing to have if you're going to win a court case is to have good witnesses. What tends to happen in the shows and movies that I watch is that the main character builds their entire case upon one specific witness, and then at the last minute, that witness either gets killed or they decide not to testify, and then the whole case is done for. Well, this morning, we're looking at a case where Jesus of Nazareth is in a sense on trial, being charged for being a Sabbath breaker, and more seriously, for being a blasphemer of God. Remember the context, Jesus has healed this man, and because of this, and because of what he has said, the religious leaders were seeking to kill him. And last week, we focused on the serious claims that Jesus made about himself. Right? He said that he is the one who had been sent from the Father. He claimed equality with God. He claimed to be the giver of life. And he claimed to be entrusted with the final judgment of all mankind. Jesus was giving a defense for who he is. And this morning, we will see him calling witnesses to the stand 
to show that his claims are not only true, but can be validated and proved by the most credible witnesses. And what we will see is that Jesus isn't really trying to prove himself as much as he's calling us to come to him for salvation. The main point of my sermon this morning, what I hope you see in the text is this. The witnesses to Jesus bear witness for your salvation so that you would come to him and live. The witnesses to Jesus bear witness for your salvation so that you would come to him and live. Jesus begins this section by saying in verse 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now we need to be super clear on what Jesus is saying here and what he's not saying here. Jesus is not saying that his, the testimony that he gives is false. That would contradict a lot of things that are said in the Bible, um, specifically John chapter 8, verse 14, where Jesus says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Jesus knew exactly who he was and what he came to do. Later on in the Gospels, he will say, before Abraham was, I am. Or I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. See, unlike us, we are confused about who we are, what our purpose in life is. Jesus knew exactly who he was. He constantly bore witness to who he was. He knew who he was, and he also knows who he's speaking to. He's talking to people who do not believe his claims. He seems to be acknowledging that his claims can be difficult to believe and that the average Jew would need some strong evidence to prove that he is equal with God. And according to the customs of the day, if he spoke by himself, for himself, from himself, then that would not be a valid witness. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, we see that a charge can only be made or can only be accepted on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so verse 31 could be restated in this way. If I have no other testimony to bring forward in proof of who I am, but my own word, my testimony would be open to suspicion. And so Jesus, knowing who he is and who his listeners are, he allows himself to be put on trial. Think about that. He allows himself to be put on trial. He doesn't have to. He doesn't need this testimony, but he does this for the salvation of his hearers. Do you see that in verse 34? Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Jesus brings forward these witnesses. He gathers the evidence not to prove his case, 
but so that people would be saved. Think about who Jesus is talking to in this passage. The religious leaders that are seeking to kill him. They are his enemies. And yet even in the midst of their hatred of him, even in the midst of him sharing some hard words with them, Jesus is offering this testimony so that they would be saved. So that you would be saved. Jesus is kind even to his own enemies. And when we have the opportunity to bear witness about Jesus, our aim should not be to win an argument. Our aim should be to win people to Christ. There are some who make that argument that they need more evidence to believe. I need more evidence to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, to believe that Jesus is truly who he says he is. Well, there is plenty of evidence, as we will see. The problem is not that there isn't sufficient evidence. The problem is that men and women have evil and hardened hearts that will not believe. And that's what Jesus is accusing these religious leaders with having. And then Jesus continues in verse 32. He says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. If we were quickly reading through this passage, we could possibly think that this one that Jesus is talking about is John the Baptist, because John the Baptist is mentioned in the next verse. But Jesus is not talking about John the Baptist in verse 32. Let's look at it really, really clearly here. But if we look at the verb in verse 32 in comparison to the verb that's used in verse 33, you see that there are two different tenses there, right? In verse 32, this one bears witness or he testifies in the present. And then in verse 33, John bore witness or testified in the past. Jesus is not talking about John here. He's talking about God the Father. God the Father is the one who bears witness. And so how do we know that Jesus is truly who we claim to be, that his words are reliable? He says, God the Father testifies about me, and his testimony is true. And there are three ways in which the Father bears witness about Jesus and we see that in this passage. He bears witness through the testimony of John the Baptist. The Father bears witness about Jesus through the works that he gave Jesus to accomplish. And he bears witness through the scriptures. And notice all these things proceed from the Father. Right? We are told at the beginning of John that he was sent from God. The works... They're the works that the Father gave the Son to do. And the scriptures, they are his word. We see that in verse 38. All right, well, let's look at the first witness. John the Baptist, a human witness. In verse 33, it says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. We've already studied the life of John, we've 
seen John in early sermons in this series, and what we saw was that John was a very good witness to Jesus. And, and even in our text this morning, it says, you sent to John. Where, where did they send to John? When did they do that? Do you remember? In chapter 1, verse 19, the Jews sent priests and Levites to investigate, to put John on trial. And what did they ask him? Who are you? And how did John respond? Do you remember? He said, I am not the Christ. He said, I am not Elijah. I am not the prophet. And so frustrated, they said, well, then who are you, man? And he said, I'm a voice preparing the way of the Lord. In the prologue, in the introduction, John is described as a man sent from God who came to bear witness to bear witness about the true light. Why? So that all might believe. He bore witness to Jesus. He told the truth. And then in verse 34, we see why Jesus calls John as his first witness. He says, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Remember, Jesus is not saying these things for himself. He doesn't need to prove anything. He's meeting these Jews where they are at in order that they might be saved. And then he makes these two comments about John. Look at verse 35. He says, he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. All right, so we see the nature of John's witness, right? His purpose the nature of John's witness was that he was a burning and shining lamp. John did not shine his own light. He shined the light of Jesus. And remember what happened when he saw Jesus? Like a witness in the courtroom. He pointed and said, that's him. Behold, the Lamb of God. He said, speaking of Jesus, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John came as a witness in order to point the way to Jesus so that we would see that Jesus is the Son of God, the, the Lamb of God, the Messiah. His ministry was clear. Jesus mentions the nature of John's ministry, but he also mentions the Jews' temporary response to John's ministry. You see that in the text? He says, they were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Remember, everyone was coming to John. Even the religious leaders were coming to him because they knew that there was something different about him. There hadn't been a prophet for hundreds of years. Everybody was coming to him, coming to be baptized. And here Jesus reminds these Jews that when they sent to John, they were willing to listen to him for a while. They were willing to see that he was a burning and shining lamp, but now they reject his testimony. 
Richard Phillips says in his commentary, the Jews were like so many people in churches today who come only to get something from the worship. If they enjoy the sermon or the music, they stay. But when the enjoyment runs out, they go. Jesus said, in contrast, I say these things so that you may be saved. Churches and preachers need to have the same approach to ministry that John the Baptist and Jesus did. They ministered not to offer enjoyable spiritual experiences, but to save souls. And John had one message. One message. That message was to point to Jesus and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The witness of John the Baptist. Next, the witness that Jesus brings to attention of these Jews is the witness of his works. We see that in verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. John was a good witness. He bore witness about Jesus. But Jesus says that there is a greater witness. There's a greater testimony, a far superior witness. And it is the works that the Father has given him to accomplish. Remember, in our study of the Gospel of John, we've encountered Jesus doing these works or signs. And we've mentioned that these signs, in the case of Jesus, point to who he is and point to what he came to do. These signs don't point to Jesus as some great miracle worker, but they point to him as the Son of God. If you think about that, that story of the paralytic, Right? His friends carry him to Jesus and they lower him down through the roof. And Jesus sees the faith of his friends and says to the man, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes are questioning in their hearts. They're saying, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the paralytic rose and went home. The work that Jesus did pointed to who he really is and what he has come to do. And so what was the point of that miracle of healing this man, to show that Jesus is none other than God himself. To see in the sign that he can do more than just heal the body. He healed the man so that they would know that he has the power to forgive sins. Remember, the scholars refer to the first half of John's gospel as the book of signs. John presents these seven signs that point to the deity of Jesus Christ. The first sign is when he changes the water into wine. What he does physically reveals what he is able to do spiritually. He's the living God who transforms water into wine 
which points to the reality of the fact that he can transform our lives and bring supernatural joy. He had come to do what empty religion could never do. And remember what the result was from that miracle? The disciples saw his glory and believed in him. They received the witness of his work. And then the second sign was the, the healing of the royal official's son, which showed that he, is, he has this divine power to, to give and preserve life. And then the third miracle, which we're still in this morning, is that healing of the lame man, which Jesus shows that he has the saving power that people had been looking for and seeking. And then we will see in the feeding of the 5,000, which shows that he satisfies the hunger of the soul. The fifth miracle, Jesus walks on water, showing that he is the Lord who exercises authority over the laws of nature. The sixth miracle, Jesus heals the man born blind, which shows that he has the power to give physical and spiritual sight. And then the seventh miracle, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, showing that he has the authority over death itself. Jesus performs things in the physical realm so that people could see that he is God. And so that we would see that he is able to bring salvation to lost and hopeless sinners. His works testify to who he is, what he came to do. And in John chapter 14, verse 11, Jesus says, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Think about this. There is not one place in the Gospels where the enemies of Jesus ever deny the miracles that he did. There's no place in the Gospels where the enemies of Jesus deny the miracles that he did. They never say, no, you didn't do that. They accuse him of being from Satan, but they never deny that the miracle actually happened. They saw the miracles. That testimony was clear. The works were there, and yet they would not believe. They didn't want to believe. It's not that they didn't have sufficient evidence. They didn't want to believe. And so if you were not willing to consider seriously the testimony of Jesus' miracles then you are showing the same hardness of heart that these Jews, these religious leaders had who falsely accused Jesus and eventually crucified him on a cross. And now notice Jesus brings out this final witness. The third witness that Jesus presents is the witness of the Old Testament scriptures. This is the most important of the three Jesus declares in verses 37 to 40, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. 
for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The scriptures bear witness about Jesus. And there's two main truths about the witness of scripture. The scriptures are a witness from God, and the scriptures are a witness to Christ. So they're a witness from God and a witness to Christ. The scriptures are a witness from God, meaning that they're not a witness from man. They're not a human testimony like John the Baptist, but they're a divine testimony. In verse 38, Jesus says, you do not have his word abiding in you. The scriptures are his word. We often refer to the Bible as God's word or the word of God. That's what Jesus teaches, and that's what we see in the New Testament. In 2 Timothy 3.16, the Apostle Paul writes, all scripture is breathed out by God. The scriptures are exhaled out by God. Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So yes, men were the ones who wrote down the scriptures, but God inspired it. They wrote it down, but God carried them along and led them to write exactly what he wanted. The scriptures are a witness from God. They are his word. That's the doctrine of scripture. The scriptures are a divine testimony, a witness from God. But they are also a witness to Christ. A witness to Christ. The central theme of scripture is Christ. And this is what Jesus is actually getting at in these verses. Genesis to Revelation talks about Jesus. The scriptures bear witness about him. And here's an important truth that Jesus points out to these Pharisees. You cannot understand the scriptures if you don't believe in Jesus. You cannot understand the scriptures if you don't believe in Jesus. Jesus says, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Eric Alexander says this, if you have not come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, the scripture is ultimately locked up to you. Jesus says, you refuse to come to me to have life. He is the point of all the scriptures. He's the seed of the woman who will bruise the serpent's head in Genesis. He's the provided lamb who is foreshadowed in Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. He's the Passover lamb in Exodus He's the suffering servant in Isaiah. He is the messenger of the covenant in Malachi. Everything points to Jesus. The whole of scripture 
centers around Jesus Christ. And that's why when Jesus met the two disciples on the Emmaus Road in Luke chapter 24, he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The theme of the scriptures is Jesus. Jesus. So why did the Jews not hear his voice or see his form or have his word dwell in them? Because they did not believe in the one whom the Father sent. Why had they not heard his voice? His voice was heard in Jesus. John 3, 34, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Why had they not seen his form? Because they had not believed in Jesus. John chapter 14, Philip says to him, to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Why did the word of God not dwell in them? Because the word of God dwells in us when Jesus comes and dwells in us. It's he who puts the word there. John 17, 14, Jesus speaking to the Father, he says, I have given them your word. These religious leaders had misused the scripture so much that they had come to the point of unbelief instead of faith. And yet the same danger is present today. Here in this church, we can misuse the scriptures just like the religious leaders. It's possible to admire scripture without actually reading it. Do you read the Bible? Do you read it? Do you obey the Bible? There are many people who love the idea of the Bible, but they don't read it. They would rather watch some TV show with some cheesy Jesus character that actually dig into the actual word of God. We have scripture verses on our walls, Bibles on our shelves, and yet often we confess that we've gone months or years without ever reading the Bible. And yes, there's grace in that. We, we go through difficult seasons of life, but the scriptures testify to who Jesus is. If you want to hear God's voice, you hear it right here. Nowhere else. Most of you guys know that I work for a book and Bible publisher, part-time, and I meet people who are obsessed with the Bible. Well, actually, they're obsessed with the production of Bibles. They're like nerdy about the different types of leathers that are used 
and they can tell you what weight of paper was used on so-and-so Bible. And yet, they have little, very little Bible knowledge because they don't read the Bibles they obsess over. We must not only admire the Bible, we need to read it. But don't think that you're off the hook. We can admire the Bible without reading it, which is one danger, but another danger, and I think is a danger probably more common to most of us, is that we can master the Bible without being mastered by it. We can master the scriptures as this academic and intellectual exercise. Many of the Jews were brilliant Bible scholars. They had mastered the Bible, but they weren't mastered by it. Otherwise, they would have come to Christ. So my question to you is, do you know your Bible well? But you know deep down that you aren't really being changed by the grace of God with your knowledge of it? Do you obey what the scriptures say? Or do you only know what the scriptures say? And really, what's the end goal? What's the end goal of reading the Bible? What's the end goal of reading the scriptures? It's not just to get a head full of knowledge so that we could win arguments. It's not so that we can gain tips for earthly happiness. The end goal of reading the scriptures is to know Jesus Christ experientially. It's not to be right ethically. It's not to be right politically. It's not even right to be, or it's not even right to be right theologically. That's not the end goal of knowing the Bible. The end goal of knowing the Bible, the end goal of reading the Bible is to know Jesus. It's not enough to own a Bible. It's not enough to read the Bible. It's not even enough to study the Bible or memorize the Bible. You must obey the Bible. And it's in the Bible that it points you away from your own efforts to earn your salvation, which you can never do. And instead directs you toward the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. The scriptures testify to who Jesus is so that you may be saved. You see, the Pharisees knew what the scriptures said, and yet they still sought their own glory. They didn't really love God, and they didn't want to believe. And so at the end here in verses 45 to 47, Jesus says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The purpose of the scriptures is to save, right? Jesus says, I say this to you so that you may be saved. But one day, 
Scripture will rise up in testimony against those who have, have been privileged to know it. And Jesus says, I will not curse you. Moses will. Don't miss the irony here. The Jews were condemning Jesus for his works on the Sabbath when it is their works that are condemning them. The invalid was healed, healed by the power of God. And yet instead of rejoicing, they chose to persecute and kill Jesus. Their works prove their heart. They don't have the love of God in them. They don't have the word of God abiding in them. And this reference to Moses accusing them means that one day we all will go into the presence of God. And he will say, you have had access to my word. You've had time to study, to learn, to know it. What have you done with that privilege? Because Moses was the one who gave the law, right? We know that. Moses was the one who gave the law. And the major point of the law was that for us to see that no matter how hard we tried, we can never do well enough to satisfy God. But also within the writings of Moses, we not only have the law, but we're introduced to the means by which God's standards could be met. God tells his people to rest on what he has done for them. And so that same law accuses each of us unless we come to Jesus and have life. So this morning, let none of us look down on the scribes and the Pharisees and the Jews of the day even though their sin was great. But instead, let us confess our own sin and come to Christ and be saved by the gospel that both Jesus and Moses proclaimed. Sinclair Ferguson said this, the greatest question in the world is this, who is Jesus and what am I doing about it? For those who are broken and needy, he is so full of gentleness and grace. But to those who are haughty and high-minded, they will break themselves upon this rock. So at the end of the day, it is the greatest question in the world. Who do you think Jesus is? And what are you going to do about it? Jesus said, come to me, all who are burdened and heavy laden, and you will find rest for your souls. The whole point of these witnesses that Jesus presents here is so that you would come to him and find rest for your guilty, sinful, burdened souls. And so whether it's the testimony of himself, of the Father, of John the Baptist, of his works, or of the scriptures. And as we think of this interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders, and this trial that Jesus brings forward witnesses. Think about what all this leads to. It leads to the death of Jesus. 
this trial that he has put on leads to the crucifixion. And if you think about the cross, these witnesses even speak to that moment. They testify to who Jesus is. What was John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus? He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Where is Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world? On the cross. What was the greatest work that the Father gave the Son to do? He finished the work that the Father gave him on the cross when he died so that our sins could be forgiven and so that we could be reconciled to God. And then the witness of scriptures, John writes in chapter 19, not one of his bones was broken in order to fulfill the scriptures. The scriptures are fulfilled as Jesus hangs on the cross. All these witnesses are bearing witness to him so that you would believe, that you would come to him. I hope your response to these witnesses is different from the response of the religious leaders. Jesus claims to be equal with God the Father because he is the Son of God. He backs that up with the claim or with the testimony of God the Father. And God the Father presents these witnesses, John the Baptist, the works, and the scriptures. You can believe what these witnesses say about Jesus' claims, and you can receive eternal life, or you can reject them and continue as you are under just condemnation. You can believe these witnesses that Jesus brings forward and receive eternal life, or you can reject them. The witnesses to Jesus bear witness for your salvation so that you would come to him and live. And so Jesus says, come to me. He says, search the scriptures, see that they testify about me, and come to me so that you may have life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the witness that you have given us about your son. We thank you that they are true. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the truth. We thank you that you have given us enough evidence. But we also acknowledge that we would not believe if it were not for your grace. So Holy Spirit, we praise you that you have convicted us of our sin and of our need for Christ. Lord, there are many today who reject the truth of Scripture and the testimony that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who is co-equal with the Father and a member of the eternal Godhead who came to this earth to die to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, Lord, we pray that you would convict many today of their need for him. Draw us close to Jesus this morning. 
that we would be a people that both searches the scriptures and a people that come to the Lord Jesus in faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.